The Octarine Tree, a podcast exploring the meaning of ecology, spirit, and human relationship. From Southwestern Australia, I'm your host, Byron John. G'day, mob. Welcome back to the Octarine Tree podcast. Today, we are talking with another old mate of mine, Pat Simmons Jr. I first met Pat about 10 years ago working um, at a permaculture institute, the Permaculture Research Institute of Australia in uh, northern New South Wales. Uh, I was working there and he was a student. I remember we went out one night to the local pub, it was karaoke night, and Pat sung a version of the Doobie Brothers, listen to the music I think it was, that was a little too good, suspiciously good. Um, And as as it turns out, Pat Simmons Jr., funnily enough, is the son of Pat Simmons Sr., the singer-songwriter from the Doobie Brothers. Uh, Pat Jr. went on to uh, develop really interesting permaculture projects in Maui, which is what we largely speak about, his time in Maui and the Hawaiian Islands, and his discovery of the Hawaiian traditional agricultural systems and cultural systems at large. He's actually, he's lived there for 25 years. He's not indigenous Hawaiian, although he's quite deeply connected to the indigenous community in Maui. But over his time there, studying permaculture, working on his own property and and following his nose, he's developed a pretty thorough appreciation for and understanding of how Maui works in terms of the human country connection and growing food in particular. We explore in today's chat the Doobie Brothers, record rain happening in Maui at the moment. Actually, it's worth noting today while we were talking, there was record rainfall in Maui and they actually, in the last few days, they've received a tsunami warning and during this interview, he receives a flood warning or two. The reception wasn't great it's not bad, but from his end, it's a little bit hard to hear it sometimes. Uh, at some point, so I do apologise. Uh, we also discussed the Evergreen State University, which some of you may recognise the name of for the uh, for Brett Weinstein's involvement and what went down there. Uh, Terence McKenna, traditional ag systems of the islands, Maui history, psychedelics, surprise, surprise, and Hawaiian sovereignty. So, without further ado, my mate, Pat Simmons, Jr. Pat Simmons, Jr., how are you, mate? I'm good. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Now, when was the last time we actually hung out in the flesh? Was that, It was when you came through Fremantle? Yeah, that concert in, uh, with uh, Dave Matthews was there. Yeah, Dave Matthews was there, and... I actually have a photo of me raiding your dad's rider. <laughs> I'll send it through, actually. It's quite funny. Like, I think you took it. I was, like, eating all their burritos and stuff. But um, <laughs> And Elvis Casella was there and John Mayer was there. I think Michael Franti, maybe. Yeah, I think you're right. It was um, Fremantle Blues and Roots. Yeah, I've got a photo of me on your friend's shoulders. Some, somebody has shoulders. That some, some, somebody who is intoxicated. <laughs> Yeah, it was a good time. It was the Frio Blues and Roots Festival, I think. Like, do you remember what year that would have been? Like 20... 2014. 14. Okay, cool. Yeah, that was really a blast. Um, you kind of you hooked us up with tickets, and then I remember you excusing yourself, like going, "Oh, I've got to go do something, guys. I'll be back." And then the next thing you knew, you came on stage with the Doobies. It was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. That's my thing when I'm out there with. Yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> Let's start at the beginning. I'd like to get a, a bit of an idea of your, your background. Where were you born and raised? Well, I was born in a little rural town on the, uh, on the coast of Northern California called Fort Bragg. Um, it's, on, it's in Mendocino County, so it's in the, in the redwoods, um, in the great redwood forest of Northern California. And I was born there and lived there for the first handful of years of my life. And, um, of course, traveled, traveled in and out of there with my, with my family, you know, with music and everything. Yeah. But that was, my, that was my home base. 
and kind of grew up in that coastal, chilly, foggy, yeah. uh, seaport kind of vibe. And then when I was four years old, um, my dad bought property over here in Maui, Hawaii. And even before he bought it, we were coming over here to visit as just tourists a couple of times. And so he felt an affinity towards it. He did. He likes it. He always really loved everything about Hawaii, Hawaii history and just the, the culture. And he was always fascinated by it. And, um, you know, where we lived in Northern California, it was like a four hour drive just to get to the airport where my dad would have to fly out and he would be working all the time every month flying in and out. Right. It was a lot of driving for him and he really wanted to go somewhere that you didn't have to be in the cold as well because it was pretty chilly where we lived up there Yeah, and rainy most of the year. You know, in the summertime, it's pretty chilly. Yeah. And yeah, he got land here in Hawaii and that's where we, that's where I live right now. And we've, um, you know, when, I, when he first got the land, we used to come over and visit the property that we bought and it was just raw land. It was old cattle land yeah, and jung jungle. <laughs> is that the same patch of dirt that he's on now or have you moved since? That's the same, so that's the same property we're on now. Yeah, I, I was raised here. My dad bought this property in 90, 1994. I was four years old. Right. And uh, we ended up building a couple homes on it. And then in 1996 or 7, 97, I was, I was just about seven years old, six years old, and we moved into the into the property here okay and that's where i've stayed ever since i've done my travels and gone off to university and all that what was your university experience i don't i've not talked to you about that before yeah i actually had a really unique experience you know growing up here i went through the public school system hawaii public school system up until high school yeah um which was really not very enjoyable um <laughs> i just i mean the social life of school was, was great growing up but i knew from a young age that the indoctrination that I was receiving from these, from just loads of homework. And I already knew at a young age that I was just not cut out for it, the academics and all that. I did great. I did fine in school. I passed, but um, ended up learning about this alternative college called Evergreen State College. You went to Evergreen? Which is in Olympia, Washington. I, I went to Evergreen. Yeah, I'm, I'm very familiar with Evergreen since the Brett Weinstein incident. Funny. Yeah, go on. That's very fascinating. I had no idea. I went there. Yeah. Oh, I had heard from a friend about, um, you know, I had this, I had this, this elder uncle friend of mine uh, who's a Chinese doctor here, Chinese herbalist here mm -hmm. in Maui. He's like this old hippie guy that's been in Maui since the 70s. Yeah. But he's really into health and nutrition and spirituality and Taoism. And he was, he kind of was one of my, my mentors growing up. And he told me about it. He went to Naropa in Colorado. Mm -hmm. And, in the, in the 60s, 70s, and he <laughs> he told me about Evergreen yeah. and thought that I might like that, and then I found out about that, and that was the direction I went. But at the time, I was not at all interested in, in environmental studies. Okay. I was really into music and film and photography, actually. I was really into film. Is that what you were studying? So, as I yeah, when I first got there, it's a funny story. When I first arrived at Evergreen, um, you know, I'd already been kind of a hippie growing up, <laughs> and uh, no. was drawn toward, drawn toward the alternative educational experience. Um, but when I went to school there, I actually ended up signing up late for classes, and a lot of the classes were filled, and which was kind of a funny thing because it's like my first experience in college, and then I get there and all the classes are filled. I'm a little late. I'm just kind of scrambling to get enrolled in something for my first quarter, first semester. I was actually really wanted to be in this Celtic, Irish folk song history uh class wow Evergreen, Evergreen, they have these programs that aren't necessarily traditional classes but they're called a program they've got quite a different model don't they at evergreen yeah so instead of having like a subject that you're studying one subject um they might have a theme for a program and then you study all the different subjects around that theme like the theme of the program that i wanted to be in was about celtic music and celtic folklore and and uh poetry yep. and whatnot and so i was like oh that sounds great celtic irish music theory learning about the history of uh, the history and the music ethnomusicology of it all yeah and i thought that was fascinating it was the only class that was one of the classes that i wanted and then that ended up being full mm. and so i was like okay what do i do now okay i might as well jump onto something that sounds cool and the only there was like a couple things open and one of the things that drew me in was this amazing was this this 
program that had like two spots left in it. Mm. It was called Into the Woods. <laughs> <laughs> Community, Conflict, and Alliance. And then and the I, I didn't know what I was getting into. And so I thought, okay, that sounds interesting. I like forests. So mm -hmm. that changed my whole trajectory in life. Very briefly, what's the elevator pitch for, for that curriculum or that theme? So the theme of the program was um, just that it's community, conflict, and alliance. So what it talked about was um, there was different case studies. In particular, we were living, you know, Olympia, Washington is in the Pacific Northwest of North America. And there's a huge amount of logging and deforestation that happens up there. And so a lot of the case studies we were studying were the different species of the forest that were uh, being affected by deforestation. Like Sasquatch? <laughs> Potentially. <laughs> Mostly the spotted owl up there, which is a big theme. And then also um, we started delving into the indigenous and Native American perspective as, well, as part of the communities that were being affected and we got to go study and, and go on a reservation and learn from the tribes which was pretty cool mm. and so it just changed my whole my whole flow my whole trajectory i was going through this music thing yeah ended up playing a lot of music as well but really my education went from being this um being i was 17 years old at the time i turned i turned 18 in college yeah and i had no idea what i was up to i was really into psychedelics and really into music and i was really into yeah. uh nature and so that's what drew me into this into the woods program and i ended up just learning about a lot of uh large-scale environmental degradation that i had no idea existed on the earth and i ended up learning all about these things that are happening on our planet that i that not many people get to study or hear about or read about unless you kind of do your research. Um, but pretty much every, anywhere you go on the earth, there's environmental issues happening. And that's really what this, the, the program was about was these co community forest conflicts, essentially. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So that's right in your formative years, you got a, a good taste and eye opening of, yeah. of, of that reality. So how old were you when you left Evergreen? Well, Evergreen was a kind of a long experience and I, I mean it was you know a four-year experience for me but everybody has a unique opportunity where you can take uh time and go study abroad and get credit for it and do different things so i ended up going to uh back home to hawaii i was sick of the winter in, in, in washington so I, I went home to hawaii and studied um different things and and that works where i learned about permaculture the word permaculture uh -huh. and it started uh infiltrating my awareness and there was this program that popped up in Maui right down the road 10 minutes down the road from my house there's a permaculture design course I was the only one of the only local people in it it was all people from off island huh. and a woman named Penny Livingston oh yeah from Northern California and Brock Dolman yeah uh, I know those names and then this other guy from the big island named John Valenzuela and those three were my permaculture like first PDC I took when I was 19. How old were you when you got to Zaytuna? For those listening, Pat and I originally met at Zaytuna Farm in northern New South Wales, which is the home of the Permaculture Research Institute of Australia, led by Jeff and Nadia Lawton. I was teaching there at the time. I think I spent a year there as woofer coordinator and nursery manager and teacher in general. And uh, you came on an internship right, in 2010? You know, during, yeah, it was actually 2011. 2011. It was in uh, um, October 2011. And, um, but prior to that, I had seen Jeff Watton's films yeah. um, at my PDC in Maui in 2010. The year before that, I had seen Jeff Watton's films and it blew my mind. I had no idea that uh, permaculture was this beautiful thing. And, and um, it's just to see what was going on in Australia. And that made, made me really want to go visit Jeff. And then I ended up getting college credit from Evergreen to go visit Jeff. Oh, cool. And uh, do all that internship and get, get my, my last, some of my last credits. And then after, after Jeff's program, um, I came back home to Hawaii and studied, studied with more permaculture experts here and started getting into grafting and nursery propagation and more plant studies. And then ended up finishing my last credits in college with an arborist, learning about pruning trees and cutting trees and um, all of that. So would you say that of all the different areas and sub-threads of permaculture and regenerative agriculture and all those related studies, would it be fair to say that 
you lean toward the horticultural side of things as opposed to buildings, animals, people systems, that kind of thing. Is that fair? Definitely. Um, even right before I discovered permaculture, I'd already been into gardening. Yeah. Just living in the tropics here in Hawaii, we have lots of fruit trees. And my, my dad planted trees when I was a little kid and um, been starting to eat from those trees at a young age and um, experience what that feels like. Growing up in Maui, did you and your dad, did he have any connection to Terence McKenna and his botanical, his arboretum on Maui? No. Well, um, oh, that's an interesting. I'll, I'll tell another side story to that. But yeah, my dad never, never, my dad never knew about Terence McKenna. It was actually my older brother who told me about Terence McKenna. We used to listen to him on YouTube yeah. to all his old raps and his talks. We used to listen. I was about 13, 14, 15, just starting to get into, um, you know, cannabis yeah my my brother he he introduced me to terrence and then later in life side story i actually met a man here i won't um, reveal anyone's name but i met a man here who uh trained with terrence mckenna he was one of terrence's students in hawaii terrence taught him everything everything he knew and pretty much and to this day is um i'm in touch with 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 this friend of mine and um he's who introduced me to ayahuasca uh the McKenna brothers, I believe, on Hawaii. What was it called? I forget the name. But they started at an arboretum, a garden of South American or worldwide. But botanical dimensions, it's called. Yes, botanical dimensions. Yeah, that's in, it's on the Big Island of Hawaii. Oh, it's on the Big Island. I thought it was on Maui. Okay, right. Yeah, but, but he but parents did come here on and off. You know, he had several friends throughout the island. Yeah. Ayahuasca embedding itself in local culture to a degree. Um, there pretty much anywhere you go in the world, I think there's people that are working with the medicine now. Um, I myself was exposed to psychedelics at a young age, just growing up in the hippie culture. And, Mm. you know, I had dabbled in all the different things from LSD to mushrooms and all that. And I'm not afraid to talk about that at all. You know, that's a major thread of discussion on this podcast. So go nuts. I think that's really what drew me to Evergreen was my work with psychedelics at a young age being, you know, mid-teen, mid-teens, um, I, I really went off on that path at a young age and, and it, yeah, the earth showed itself to me and, and revealed um, more and more. And that's what drew me to Evergreen. That's what drew me to permaculture. Um, and then, yeah, when I discovered ayahuasca, um, I was here in Maui and through this friend who is Terrence's, Terrence's friend, and he really took me under his wing. He had a nephew who was my good friend. And so his nephew and I were kind of his apprentices. His apprentices. And uh, yeah, I, I've been not really heavily involved in that since I've had children. Been so busy with kids. But yeah. it's still a part of our life. And, and um, yeah, I, I appreciate um, that the plants, you know, we have access to the plants here in Hawaii. Are you aware of any indigenous psychedelic plants fungi or otherwise to the hawaiian islands as far as i know there are not any psychoactive plants that the hawaiians would consume except for ava or what people call kava Kava, which is not which is a a narcotic you know it's more of a a physical relaxant Mm -hmm. and more like maybe opium or something but it's not a psychoactive plant It, it doesn't affect the mind it affects the body more but not at the point of being psychoactive i think you know okay and so Maui ecology is quite interesting, isn't it? From what I understand, and, and I'm by no means an expert on it, but Maui is a relatively small island, but because of its elevation changes and its topography, different parts of the island foster quite different and varied ecological types and biomes. Is that correct? Yeah, it's a subtropical climate here, but we have these radical valleys called the Valley Isle, actually. And... Um, yeah, we have a 10,000 foot mountain in which snows occasionally. And I'm at a, just below 1,000 feet here, probably around 900 feet mm-hmm. um, elevation. And so it gets a little chilly in the evenings and in the mornings. I would say, I don't know the Celsius, but it's in the low 60s in the early morning, which is a little chilly, a little chilly, but not, not cold, cold. There are certain faces of the island that are arid or semi arid. Is that correct? Yeah, like right now. Yeah, right now we're on the due north end and um just just to the ocean from us is cliffs like you drive down the road and then you hit you go all the way down to the end of the road and then it's just cliffs like maybe a 200 foot 
tall cliff to the ocean. Um, that's real close to the coastline here. And then just above us is forests for miles and miles and miles. Wild forests. They're invasive species that were brought here. Yeah. Not, not native species. So it's, most of the island is covered in non-native trees. There were studies done. The novel ecosystems of Maui are quite well known within those circles who pay attention to those things. It's quite diverse exotic species that now make up the, the plant population there isn't it the climax population and because we're on the windward side which means we get the brunt of the open ocean wind and rain we're on the rainy side we just call it the wet side yeah <laughs> and um so from here um you, you drive maybe 30 minutes around the mountain and they get five inches of rain a year and it's dry and sunny and hot and barren and uh, very different trees and grass species that grow there. It's more like a ton, like a African savanna looking. Are there areas that you would say that approximate a Mediterranean climate in some respects, like a you know, mid-coast California climate? Yeah, so if you just go up the mountain from here, um, up and around a little bit, it gets uh, a lot colder. And then it gets a little bit drier. And so you have all these different climates that are just like California. And sometimes it snows up there. And then where we are, it's literally we're subtropic. So it's not quite tropics, not humid tropics. Mm. You can get the chill a little bit. So it's kind of more, it's not even jungle. It's more forest here. It sounds actually somewhat equivalent to the Shannon in northern New South Wales where we first met. So it's a, it's subtropical, but because of the valleys, you can actually get cooler weather. Yeah, exactly. But it doesn't get below, you know, it doesn't get chilly. You don't get any frost where I am. Right. But so like on a, on a small island, it's like 1,800 square kilometers or something like that. You have subtropical, Mediterranean, semi-arid and alpine ecosystems or microclimates. So like yeah. it's one of those places where you could grow a huge diversity of crops and animals and have a huge diversity of systems all within a couple of days walk from one another. Yeah. Completely, yeah. Yeah, are, are people doing that at all? Like, are there, are there systems there? And I hope to speak about the more traditional Hawaiian island systems. Uh, but but when people think of the Hawaiian islands, they think of, you know, hula skirts and pineapples and welcome to Jurassic Park. Right. They don't realize that we have these wild forests. What's your understanding of the history of the Hawaiian islands or Maui in terms of the indigenous there? I understand you're not speaking for them. You're not indigenous Hawaiian, but what's your grasp having lived there for 25 years? Yeah, and I've done a lot of research over the years and just grown up around the stories and the people. And some of my best friends are Hawaiian. Um, most of them don't like to be called Hawaiian even anymore. They like they want to be called Kanaka Maoli, which is the traditional term. Kanaka means human or man, and then Maoli. Um, Maoli. Getting a flashcard warning on my phone. Wow. It says it says uh, on my phone. I'm getting a flashcard warning. It says Kapakalua Dam failure. Oh sh. In Haiku area, evacuate if downstream. Repeat now. Is that you? No, there's a large dam. Yeah, but is uh, that you? Do you have to evacuate? No, not at all. I'm up on a hill. Yeah, but that's not good, man. If there's a big dam about to blow. I know. Yeah. Wow. Crazy. Um, it's a pretty big valley that the dam is in. So, I I, yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody will be right. injured. This is pretty big. So we're on an interesting spot here. It's like we live on a big hilltop up here. Well, we're, we're actually on like a pinnacle view. We can look down and see all the area around us. And um, we're on this rolling hills. And we're up on the top of the hill. And then just around us is cow pastures. Right. And so we're like this really exposed windy spot. Actually, we get a ton of wind on my hillside. Yeah. And then just below is kind of rolling, rolling pastures into jungle and forests. And all around where I live used to be native koa and ohia forest, which is these are endemic trees um, that were all cut down for cattle yeah. uh, space and then all logged for the beautiful fine wood. Same old story. And so all this area was once forested in, in burnt fern forest and all these native exotic trees that you don't see much anymore. And then now, um, yeah, so in, in the valleys below, I'm looking out my window right now, and there's rolling pastures that head down toward a valley. And at the edge of the cow pasture valley, there's a barbed wire fence. And then on the other side of that fence is this 100-foot to 200-foot deep valley with river flowing wild through it and 
wild pigs everywhere and deer wild deer okay so like that's some of the protein wild protein you have running around deer and pig you... yeah, we, we like to hunt yeah yeah something that i've noticed and appreciated following your work over the last few years is how hands-on you and your community seem to be and re- how engaging you guys are in connecting with the traditional systems of of the island which are obviously extremely well adapted to the ecology yeah for obvious reasons the the traditional systems of of hawaii they've been i'm going to butcher this pronunciation was it ahu ahuapua it's the ahu system ahu okay i'm not even going to try it again it's two words and and the word is ahu a-h-u ahu and Mm -hmm. that in traditional in ancient uh history that the ahu is the altar like an altar they place something and then the word for pig is pua'a, ah, pua'a, right. P-U-A-A, pua'a. And so the ahu pua'a is the pig altar. And that's where they would take all the produce and all the harvest for the season. Hmm. They, when they would share with the kings and the chiefs that lived around, the, with the, they were like the commoners growing the food, the ancient Hawaiian people. They had a different caste system of commoners and, and chiefs. Right. And the chiefs had like sub-chiefs that would, they were like land-managed the areas they were kind of like the um the landlords of the area right and then they would have the uh, the ahupua where the, where the they would place all the, all the produce um to offer to the chiefs that you know kind of ruled the areas um but that's a it's interesting history because where i am right now and i live i live on these edge on the edges of these valleys and just down in the valleys there's these ancient archaeological rock stonework gardens that have been overgrown in vegetation for 120 something years um, or, or more in some cases. And so we're, we're around this area where there was a high population of indigenous Hawaiians living completely off the land um, for generations, eight generations or more. And the way they lived off the land, from my understanding, I, I would categorize the indigenous Hawaiian system within the hard to quantify or qualify these things but within the say the top five off the top of my head most sustainable regenerative resilient and abundant traditional eco-agricultural systems in the world so would you give us like a brief rundown of how it works like my understanding is that a family group or a tribal group would inherit a particular watershed and they had very specific way of utilizing different parts of that watershed is that accurate for sure, yeah. So every different area or zone of, of elevation in the forest was used for different things, essentially. Whereas most of the Hawaiians, most of the Hawaiians lived on the ocean because it was the warmest and they had an abundant fish life, food for them. So the village would be down by the water's edge. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, there was definitely, definitely home sites all throughout the elevations, but a lot of the um, people, they lived, they were ocean people. So most of them were down near the ocean and then they would gather their forest stuff up up in the upcountry zone where they would cut down big trees for their canoes that they would float down the streams and bring to the ocean where they made open ocean canoes mm-hmm. and um and then they had medicines and things that they harvested in the forests and different fibers for weaving and for making cordage and their clothes and everything they were really uh, industrious people and, and um they're all their their remains all that remains of their culture in our area really is these old stone walls that I see all around. And what happened to go back to, to the Hawaiian history that you asked me about earlier, the, the, the history of Hawaii is really unique because, um, you know, there's a lot of awareness now that the islands were never legally over, uh, never legally. Yeah. Changed. The kingdom, the kingdom of Hawaii yeah, was never really, um, there was no, they didn't see their lands legally or, or lawfully. Uh, by international law, that is. And so a lot of that um, awareness is coming uh, coming up now. And a lot of my Hawaiian friends are realizing that they can <clears throat> find where their families used to live mm. and, you know, ancestrally, and they can go back there and open those places. And there's, there's something specific I want to touch upon there because in, 18, in the late 1840s, there was a... Um, an act that was passed is that there was that was actually a legislature in Hawaiian kingdom. The Hawaiian monarchy had its own parliament and legislature, and so they would they passed an act called the Kuleana Awards Act, 
And what that meant was kuleana is, is the word for responsibility or privilege in Hawaii, kuleana. And that also is an, is an early form of land ownership in Hawaii because previously when the white man arrived, there was no land ownership by anybody privately. It was all owned by the elite, by the chiefs. Right. And there was these, like I said, there was these landlords, these sub-chiefs who would manage all the production of the lands by the commoners. And um, that was the form of land management was a monarchy system. Yeah. And so, and then when the white folks got here, they wanted to own land. And they also started taking all the resources pretty early on mm-hmm. and um, leasing acreage. They, they lease different par- parcels from the crown. And so they, they started wanting to purchase these lease, lease leased lands from the crown. And the Hawaiian kingdom realized, okay, we got to do something so that our people can get something too. And so they passed this act called the Kuleana Awards Act, where a Hawaiian family could write down a claim, a land claim, and, and if, if they could write or read back then, which is pretty rare. Um, but a lot of Hawaiians could write and read. It was a very illiterate society, actually, because early on there was, there was uh, a push, the Hawaiian kingdom pushed for literacy right. because they realized they needed to, they needed to get, be aware of, of, they needed to be a player in the international game. Yep. And so, um, and interrupt me if you have any questions along the way, but I'll just, this is a really important piece of our work. Yeah, 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 you rant. There's this Kuleana Awards Act. And so what the Hawaiian family would do is they would write down in cursive in Hawaiian. <laughs> um, they had, they'd write down, a detailed claim of, of their area, like say they had been living on this one spot for generations, and they'd say, "Okay, I want to go claim this land." They'd write down the claim, they'd go down to the courthouse, whatever. The, this claim would be mailed by steamship to the king on another island, and um, King Kamehameha the third, and uh, he would approve of these awards. And so they were awarded like a number, like they call it a land claim award number, LCA number, and now it's an early form of tax map. Mm. TMT numbers in Hawaii. So, so this is where we're getting into the land ownership early on. Yeah. And so Hawaiian families actually had their own legal form of TMK land ownership. They had their own deed to the land, essentially. And when, at the time of the illegal overthrow that happened by, when the U.S. military came in by, um, on, by gunpoint, they came in and took the queen on house arrest. By force. They made her sign these documents that changed the laws and proclaim themselves as a provisional government. They, they formed a state, they, they, they had a military coup that happened and they were backed by Grover Cleveland and they were backed by these, by Congress, by U.S. Congress. The U.S. Congress said, okay, we'll recognize this group of, of white people as the new government. And they were the, the great grands, they were the grandsons of the missionaries that came and they were farmers. Mm. They were the people who came to take the water for large scale agriculture that still exists today. Mm. Um, that's the important part to get into more is that the that the agricultural uh, um, establishment here still exists. It's gone from hand to hand. Yeah. And what happened was that the peoples that lived on these little land claims they were forced to leave, and they were told that they didn't couldn't live there anymore essentially, and they and their their water was taken away by dams and diversion systems that were built. And they just didn't have the water to flow to their gardens anymore, so they had to leave and go find work elsewhere. Some of them died from disease. Uh, who knows? To find work as well, they left these valleys. And so the valleys remain empty. And so now you have these huge swaths of land where there once was high populations of people uh, farming and living off of what they grew, and now it's all under weeds and invasive species that were brought in for the past 100 years. So when you and your friends and the current generation of islanders return to these places is that what you see it's just like dense overgrown like quote unquote weeds smothering everything in valleys is that what it looks like dense vegetation dense vegetation yeah, yeah and what, what what we've been doing lately is this so about two years ago two years ago this month actually i was introduced to a couple hawaiian sisters uh these two sisters are from an area called kanai and which is on the northeast side of the island it's about a 45 minute drive from here along the coast Port hana and it's a remote valley where you the hana highway is a really famous road and, and, and actually the road systems themselves were created by these by these uh sugar cane farmers in the late 1800s the whole road system was made by these planters too so uh, we're driving on this road that actually follows an old irrigation tunnel 
Right. And um, so we're out in this remote valley, and all along these this this coastline are these massive valleys that go from mountain to ocean. Another warning. Got to turn my phone off here. Sorry. That's cool. They're opening a shelter for people who need sh- shelter places because the rain is more wild. Mm. But yeah, so all along the, uh, the, the mountainside here um, is a huge amount of water. And that's why we have these warnings going off because we have a really, really m- incredible uh, mountainside that, that the water comes off of here is unlike anywhere else in the world. And actually it has the highest recorded rainfall on earth. Right. It's from this one spot. And people think it's Kauai or West Maui, but... There was this spot that was 560 something inches of rain in one, one year. This whole mountainside here is really abundant, abundant in rain. And in the late 1800s, these sugar planters, they built these incredibly sophisticated and diverse, uh, very technical and advanced, really, for the time, aqueduct systems right. to divert water from the valleys away from the rainy side all the way to the dry side of the island where you get these big flat open plains where it's real sunny. Ah, interesting. How did they construct them? You don't have to go into detail. Is it just concrete, cement? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. It's a, it's a whole network of road, of four-wheel drive roadways through the bush right. uh, up on the mountains. And it's several different elevations. You can look at a map of Mali and see yeah. these contour swale-looking like uh, ditches that go all around the mountains at several different elevations sometimes it's four different ditches at four different ele- contour elevations they multi-function as roads as well yeah and that's how our road system was created back in the day yeah. that's so, interesting so that's kind of on key line that's a key line patterning so they're taking water from the valley yeah. and the road drain is going slightly downhill towards the ridge and it wraps around the ridge going downhill, downhill, and then it feeds the next valley, which is drier. Pretty incredible. And so, well, essentially, this whole side of the island is wet, though. Like, every single valley is flooding and, like, raging when it rains. And so they take all this water, and they and they actually learned about it. I've been reading about it over the years. They actually learned this system from the Hawaiians because the Hawaiians have these wow. same similar intricate designs where they feed their wetland taro patches, and they feed these, they're like big rice patties. Yeah. And the Hawaiians, they, they discovered this, or they carried this information from the, you know, with them across from island to island. But it was really developed here in Hawaii, had the most sophisticated uh, wetland taro production here anywhere else in the world. Those paddies on the other side of the island that are now irrigated, are they considerably fertile now? Are they, are they really productive? Well, that's where I live. I live on the wet side. So every valley around me right now has those ancient Lo'i, they're called Lo'i, and they're, they're wetland, flat, terraced gardens okay. that were once fed by these irrigation ditches. So, so the Hawaiians had their own form of, of irrigation ditches where they dammed the stream a bit, but they would take the water. They would only take a little bit of the water, yeah. and, bring it in, and then the water would go back to the stream after it left their system. But these systems, these, these systems that, were inputted, that were made by these white folks that came over, yeah. these sugar planters, uh, Klaus Spreckles, um, Sanford Dole from Dole Pineapple Company, all these... Um, they were, they, these were um, uh, aqueduct systems that permanently removed the water from the stream. So downstream from the diversion was dry. Oh, like they took all the water? All the water. Okay. And is that, is that still the case? To this day, that's still the case. Oh, wow. All the water goes to the dry part of the island and, and for sugarcane and pineapple production. And the sugarcane is exported. And so, but just a few years ago in 2016, uh, 2016, 2017, the sugar company, um, closed, they, they stopped their operation. They were, they were, there was so much pushback from their chemical agriculture that they got, they had, they had to stop what they were doing and they literally just shut down because it, they were being subsidized for so many years too, that they, they weren't able to produce much and it was just ruining the land in, in chemical agriculture. And so what happened recently is they sold the land to a new company and they changed the name from uh, Hawaii Commercial and Sugar to Mahi Pono, which is a Hawaiian, those are Hawaiian words. Mahi is to farm or plant or to garden, Mahi. And then Pono is the word for balance or like righteousness. What is right? What's Pono? And so they literally, what, what they did is they sold this massive company as well as the water rights. Yeah as well as all these aqueducts, they sold the water rights um, to this new company 
And the new company is actually based out of Canada and California. They're, they're uh, monocropping chemical companies there as well. Right. And essentially what's been going on is that company that, that sold, they were called Alexander and Baldwin. And they were the Baldwin family. That's the family that owns most of the land here still. And what's happening on the islands is that most of the land went into agriculture historically. And, so, and then from agriculture to real estate. And then have these huge areas of land where all the homes are, especially where even where I am now, where I live. Yeah. All this land was once agriculture and cattle and all these and sugarcane and pineapple. And now it's just exploding in homes. That's a fairly common pattern around the world. Exactly. And then they're pretending that, oh, we're trying to diversify. Instead of just sugarcane, they're saying, oh, no, we're going to diversify ag. And so now they're growing coffee and citrus and they're kind of planting out various things, but they have like a thousand acres of citrus and a thousand acres of that. And it's like rows and rows of just dirt blowing in the wind and they spray okay. pesticides and herbicides and all. It's just lip service to the concept of regeneration. Exactly. And they're just pretending we call it fake ag here. We call it fake ag. And so that's what we're dealing with now is the same situation is, it still is happening to the Hawaiians who have been, they've been withstanding all this, enduring all this trauma to their land and their culture, which was based on homesteading in the valley. <laughs> And they, their whole way of life was transformed because of these sugar planters. These systems, the, the traditional systems, like within a watershed, within a valley. So my understanding is that they had had at the top of the catchment, up the top of the hill, they would have a, the concept of the sacred or taboo forest, which wasn't touched. Is that accurate? Um, it is accurate. However, um, they utilized every ecosystem for purposes. So it's not that it was taboo at all but it was that you had to have a specific purpose or reason to go there I see. and so a lot of the medicine men the kahuna or the, the shamans or you know you call them shamans or the experts in in certain medicines or in certain things like uh you know the people who looked at the stars to navigate uh -huh. um they would go to these places to find uh to to have spiritual connections and or or study the landscape and they'd also go to these places to gather their medicines and fibers too so it wasn't that it was completely kapu. It wasn't as cultivated. It was like a zone zone four in, in permaculture nomenclature or a zone, five, a zone five even that you'd sustainably gather from. Exactly. Yeah. However, there were trail systems around the island that the Hawaiians would hike over the mountains to get to the dry side and they would trade for salt ah. for their produce because the whole, it rains so much where we live over here that they can't get salt right, right. from the ocean it doesn't dry the, pu the puddles don't dry so on this dry side of the island they can they can make big uh calabashes of salt water and they would sit them in the sun and dry them and make salt how long would it take to walk from one side to the other through the guts if it if it was um i mean it really just depends on what route you route you take in terms of trading on foot is it a couple of days yeah days, days. yeah like that scale of magnitude two three four days okay oh yeah Definitely, yeah. And it's so wild and rough because of the overgrowth, too. I, mean, I imagine that back when the Hawaiians, when the Kanaka were, were out, they had trail systems that were... They would have maintained a trail system. Yeah, it's much the same here in Australia. In fact, most of our roads are actually originally the Indigenous walking trails become the colonial walking trails, which become the horse and cart trails, which are then paved, and then the highways. Um, um, traditionally, there was a, a, a trail system around the whole island called the Alaloa, the Alaloa, the, the long trail. And it was called the King's Highway. And along the King's Highway, uh, it was paved with stones. Right, they paved. They paved them with, 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 with lava rock stones. So there was, it was a perfect trail for the chiefs to walk. And they were probably carried. Um, and they, and the, along the, the Galaloa, they would have the Ahupua. They'd have the altars, the pig altars. And they, that's where they would, the chiefs would come and make their yearly rounds. They would walk all the way around the island and check on it's an early form of land management. So they would check on all the resources. They would check in with right. the local chiefs, say, oh, how's, your, how's your watershed doing? And we want to come and see how you're doing. Because if, you're not, if, you're not, if it's not productive and you're not keeping it up, we're going to get someone out. We're going to kill you and get someone else involved to, to, be, you know, to head. That was how serious they were sometimes. That's pretty incentivizing. If they didn't keep it together, they were offed and they were, another person was put in their place to manage things. Right. And that was so that the land would always be abundant. And the chiefs were 
Um, they weren't stupid. They knew about land management. They knew about permaculture back then. They knew that they needed to sustain their communities. Their system is, I don't think it's as recognized as it should be, but frankly, that whole study isn't as recognized as it should be. And for what it's worth, I think I've mentioned it to you before. I'm actually writing a, a documentary series on pre-industrial traditional eco-agricultural systems of the world and Hawaiian system is like up in the top four that I want to focus on along with the Shinampas and the Dehesa and others so I hope to get my haul my Australian butt over there sooner than later and so downhill then from this the sacred forest you'd have like a more productive forest system what kind of species of forestry tree system, tree crops, would they cultivate traditionally? Well, below the well, the the, for, the actual alpine zone at the summit of the mountain, it's just shrubbery. A what? A shrubbery! Right. Which has has certain shrubs that they would harvest for hardwood and whatnot, but just below that is the the the, the forest of the gods. They call it the Valakua, yeah. and that has this huge swath of koa and other hardwood trees that they would use for their posts for building their homes and then also their canoes but that honestly that that line would would go from like uh eight thousand feet to like almost to the ocean right so literally the forest zone was like the majority of the mountain right and then and then you have these these other zones in the streams below those ridges where they would where they'd farm their wetland crops and all that and just below where i live i'm looking down in the valley right now just below here is an ancient stone archaeological system that um, is just overgrown. Like every single valley is overgrown. Man, what an adventure to be able to, to go back as a, an individual or as a family or family group of friends and reclaim and rediscover and unearth and give new life to these systems. That's so cool. It reminds me, was Sylvia Floresta from Portugal on your internship maybe she's great she's gone on to do amazing things and in portugal and spain you've got these permaculture kids these kind of punk anarchist permaculture collectives just going back to the old abandoned villages and you know cutting away the overgrowth and re-establishing them i can't imagine how many of my uh, fellow students are doing well, i can't imagine what they're doing it's amazing i'm sure that there's so much more going on even just in the 10 years since since i was there it was an amazing experience i mean the amount of incredible people who would roll through it was one of the most invigorating year and a bit of my life how invigorating the conversation is and just everyone's so passionate about it and so full of meaning at the time and you know there were some negative lessons learned as well in the less than romantic side of that whole scene but largely speaking those kind of communities are very invigorating and inspiring to be amongst because of the, the passion and the applied meaning honestly i hope to make my own uh, education center like that someday on my own family farm here that i've been developing well go for it mate i think you've got everything going for you yeah it's it's you know i have children now and i've got these three boys that uh, my oldest boy is four and a half. Yeah, you got to get past that little kid stage. That's fair. Well, that's where I'm at now. Really, the kids are involved, though. I mean, we're, we go out to this valley that we restore these terra patches at Honomanu Bay. We bring all the kids, and then the other friends of mine bring their kids. So it's just a big family experience. And we go every weekend for for an afternoon, from pretty much morning till afternoon. And and what you guys grow now, like taro, is a famous staple crop of the Polynesians and the Hawaiian Islanders. What other like the tree crops? I'm I'm interested in the the staple tree crops. Like in the traditional systems, what would they have been growing? So I'll paint the larger picture. You've got the sacred forest up the top. You've got more productive forest down slope, and then as it as the toe of the slope breaks into the flatter areas where the water accumulates, you've got taro beds and animals, chickens, pigs. We farm dogs food actually. And what dog? Dogs, yeah, that was one of their main foods. Oh, gosh. Okay, yeah. I've, I've never had the pleasure of eating dog. <laughs> and then the villages down by the water, as you said before, the main concentration of, of peoples was by the water. And then they had quite ingenious fish traps, uh-huh. didn't they? Yeah. Off the mouth of the stream as it would enter. And that's the cool thing about our location at this bay. We're restoring the, the, the gardens. At, and it's, it's an estuary. We're at the ocean. We park at the ocean and we walk down this coat, down the sand, and we're at, we're at our farm that's not where I live, but that's where we work every week. 
Right. So the species of the tree crops, what were the traditional tree crops growing there in the old systems? For food, they were they were farming bread, what they call breadfruit. Breadfruit. Okay. That's a moraceae, isn't it? Like a, a jackfruit mulberry relative. Yeah, it's it's uh it's related to jackfruit. It's uh Artocarpus is the is the genus and um it is the chief uh bre- you know staple starch. Right. It's it's like it's just like uh, taro, or we call it kalo. Taro is kalo in Hawaii. So the the word taro comes from Tahiti, and then kalo is what they call it in Hawaii. Okay. So um, the the ulu, the breadfruit, is a, a tree kalo, pretty much. It's a tree starch, mm-hmm. and cook it green, and it's just like a potato. It's amazing. You can put it in all kinds of things, and that was they had like forests and forests of this stuff. Yeah. Famous groves they talk about on the islands that were actually cut down oh, for man. industrial agriculture back in the day. There's some, some that remain here and there, but that's fucking tragic. There are many things that break my heart, but when I hear of traditional tree crop systems being cut down for something fucking stupid, that pisses me off. This is an, 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 an insane situation on this island. We have the most abundant rainfall and productive fertile soil ever. Yeah. <laughs> Right, you've got rain, you've got volcanic soil, you've got uh, varied microclimates. And huge amounts of mulch. I mean, the forests are relatively untouched. Biomass looks absolutely incredible. And then, of course, you and all, this, all the seafood resources, sea resources. Yeah, I mean, I'm one of the few people who grew up hiking and exploring around where I live. I mean, there's people that hike around, but I've done so much exploring around where I live, and I, and I rarely ever see anybody out there. It's like wild forest where I live. I live on the edge. I'm, a, I'm about 1,000 feet elevation. Just beyond where I live above is just the most wild terrain, which is the, the domain of the pigs right. and the deer. Yeah. And uh, it's huge amounts of mulch. It's ridiculous. So for, for me, like, there's huge opportunities for, for permaculture here, and I, I'm focusing on my own farm as well. It seems to me like it's one of those hotspots around the world for all the reasons we've mentioned. If people decided to and had the political and social will and the capital and whatever else, that pl- Maui of all places could absolutely hum. Oh, for sure. And, and so that's where we're at now is that the Hawaiians, they were masters of their, of their farming. And so I'm, I'm actually, because I'm so knowledgeable about the agricultural part, I'm now connecting, <clears throat> I'm now connecting with Hawaiians who, who want to learn that about their lineage. They don't know those skills, but I've, I, I've been practicing and studying them. And there's a ton of Hawaiians out there who are wanting to reconnect with their roots. And that's where these, these Hawaiian sisters that I met, yeah. these young, they're like in their mid early, their early thirties, these, these women that I know, they really spearheaded this project. It was a woman organization. There was just these two girls and like, they're pretty rowdy Hawaiians. Like they don't take shit from nobody and they go around and they'll get arrested for squatting on a property where there's a bulldozer and chain themselves to the bulldozer, you know, like they'll, yeah. they'll go and do these things and they'll make a scene about it and, and post it on social media. You know, like they're, they're the kind of girls, they're activist girls. Is that sub thread? Is that subculture of like Hawaiian secession or um, autonomy and sovereignty and traditional culture? Is that making a comeback? Do you see it growing? Definitely. I think there's a lot of people who are waking up to realizing that there's these, that, that, that the Hawaiian overthrow was never legal. It was never lawful. Their land was taken without permission. It's got to be unconstitutional, surely. For sure. And, and there's, and because the land is just becoming degraded by development, um, it's becoming more and more. And, and, and now people can't even afford to live here. Like the people who are the ancestral lineal descendants from the area, they have to find another place to live. You know, they have to leave the island because they can't afford to live here. It's like, I think eight hundred and sixty thousand dollars is the is the uh, average median price for a for a family home now. However, eight hundred thousand, like just under a million dollars. The U.S. in general, like minimum wage, you, you can't afford anything but a trailer park around the U.S. Exactly. And so, so, and so, a lot of the Hawaiians I'm in touch with now, these this this small group, they're like. Let's go back to our family land. Let's go find where our great great grandparents were farming, and let's go open that shit up. <laughs> Is there anyone making a conventional legal case? Like in Australia, we have the history of the Marbo. Yeah, I've been reading that book. Eddie Marbo court case, the native title decision, where yeah. he demonstrated that Australian Aboriginal, Indigenous Australian Aboriginals and Torres Strait Islanders, they had a form of land stewardship, which negated the whole terra nullius claim, which is, it's a whole story. And it's, 
evil in my approximation. She's reading that book now, Eddie, my boy's book. <laughs> it's a landmark case. I mean, it, it's yeah. it's of serious importance, you know, culturally, anthrop- anthropologically, legally, magically. It's it's a big deal. But I'm curious, like, because you guys on the islands, there is a, a pretty strong legal case that... Short answer is no. No, one, <laughs> no one's doing that. All right. That surprises me. There, there are people challenging it. And so there are people challenging it. And most of them are people who've been arrested for protesting and chaining themselves to certain things, like a, like Standing Rock kind of thing. Like there's the whole thing on Mauna Kea. I don't know if you know about what happened on Mauna Kea. Yeah. The big, the big mountain. Yes, yeah, Where they have the, teles- the telescope. So since then, in 2015, all throughout the decades, there's been protests because of the telescopes. Yeah. I remember Jason Momoa made a big deal about it. Yeah, Jack Johnson went up there. It was a big deal. Like all these artists went up there. Um, so what happened was these, yeah, the, the, the Hawaiian people were like, this is our sacred volcano, our pico. It's like a sacred spot on the top of the hill and you are desecrating it essentially. And they started realizing that, Hey, they didn't even have legal title to begin with. Right. It was just taken. So now there's this huge wave of education. Like the Hawaiians are getting educated now. Watch for the usual gameplay. What will usually occur is there'll be bad marketing and the people who are now fighting for or insisting on traditional indigenous recognition and return to to a recognition and a practice of that, they'll start being conflated with terrorists or something, fascists or... Yeah, we're seeing that. And, and, and a lot of the, like the Hawaiians that I'm hanging out with, they're, they're, um, they're tired of struggling with the financial system. They're tired of struggling to make rent or whatever. They're yeah. like, I just, they just want to go and find their, where their legal land is essentially. And so there's these places, there are these places where the Kuleana Awards, like you can go and find that, hey, my great grandfather had a, a parcel. Uh-huh. And, it, and, and, and if you go online to the website, I'll show, show you that sometime. You can search the, the, the number. Yeah. It's like a, like a PMK number. You can search the number and they have a Google map of it. They have this Hawaiian website they made. And it's a Google map image and it shows where they are. Huh. And, it, and then you click on it, there's, a, there's a, a bunch of black and white cursive images. Yeah. And then they have it translated into English. And it says what they were growing and how many acres they had of, of taro and how many trees they had of this. Yeah. And, it, and it shows they had a home site, whatever. And so what's happening now is these Hawaiians are realizing that, hey, I actually have a home. I actually have a place to go that might was that was my family's. So many people are longing for that. Now, I think humanity in general is getting fucking sick of the feeling of being short stay tenants to some invisible landlord right and not being able to put down roots and and wrap their arms around a tree and and dig their proverbial heels into the ground and say i belong here and and i'm connected to here the sense of not being entitled to do that or that being illegitimized because of some magical ritual with a piece of paper and a stamp and someone in in a wig or tie or badge or something said so people are getting fucking tired of that and that impulse to reconnect with country is growing and growing and growing and if it's not allowed to express itself in a healthy way what can't come out straight comes out crooked and uh it could come out crooked because i can i can see that as a kind of collective theme at the moment yeah, and I mean, I don't know how much longer we have here, but I'll just say I want to express too that um, for me, I get some, I, you know, I've gotten some pushback from certain people, uh, certain family members that, hey, I'm just a privileged white kid whose dad bought land here. Why should I, um, you know, why shouldn't I just leave and give the, my land back to the Hawaiians? And, and I feel like, sure, yeah, my dad did buy land here. Get this tomorrow the Hawaiian family who's linearly connected to my land here, they're coming over to meet us tomorrow wow. because they have a parcel within our parcel right. that they want, that they want to sell to us. Right. Because one of their family members is ill. There's an old Hawaiian auntie who's like in her nineties and they need money. They need money to pay for her medical bills. Right. And my dad has just let our horses cruise all over it. it it's just a landlocked like acre within our 10 acres. Right. Right. And and their whole land used to be this whole area. And they've sold, sold off and sold off and sold off. And they've kept this one little bit. And now they want to sell the last little bit. And so they're coming over to meet us and talk story. And mm. um, I'm actually, you know, I want to just meet them and like learn about the history really. 
Well, I wish you well. I, I hope that relationship goes as smoothly and fruitfully as possible. But this is a common theme that the Hawaiian lands are disappearing, and it's because of this fake TMK system that the U.S. government has put in place here where they've created this whole form of land ownership here mm-hmm. that never existed prior to um, the overthrow. And so because the, the, the law, they didn't have lawful title to begin with, it's becoming aware that it was all fraudulent titles now. So actually nobody owns the land here still. There was no legal title exchange. They just created, they just created their own TMK system. So that's where we're at now. We're starting from that. And with that awareness, anybody can really just go out and open whatever land they want. And, they, and, and that's what the Hawaiians that I know are doing. They're going to these wild places that their families used to live thousand, you know, sorry, 100 years ago. Yeah. And they're opening it up. And they're getting things planted and they're, they're realizing that they need to raise their kids that way. And so that's what I'm doing with my kids and raising my kids in that way and kind of pass on a better life to them, you know. Oh, the tangled webs we weave. It is complex. And I wish you all the best, mate. I, I, it is complex, but I see the work you're doing is admirable. It's really cool. So Pat Simmons Jr., I've had you for long enough, mate. I'll let you go, but thank you so much for the chat. I, are you? I, can you let the listeners know briefly where they can get hold of you or find you. Uh, we haven't even mentioned your music. Do you want to throw a website sure. out for the music? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, prior to the whole COVID thing, I, you know, I've been a musician my whole life as well as a plant geek. <laughs> and um, that's how I've made my income through music. I have a musical family. My father's a musician and um, I'm not you know, afraid to say, yeah, my, my father's and the Doobie brothers and he passed on that, that gift to me. And so um yeah, my music is still an ongoing thing during parenting. I'm not playing any shows, but still playing a little music here and there. People can go to my website to learn more about the music, which is just patsimmonsjr.com. That's patsimmonsjr.com. And, um, and then I'm pretty active on, on Instagram. Not so active on Facebook these days. Um, it's just kind of over Facebook, just kind of too much complexity. But Instagram is way easier for me, and I'm so busy throughout my day anyway. I don't have time to go make posts much, so... Mm-hmm. Um, Instagram, if you can find me on there, just Pat Simmons Jr. on Instagram is the best way to find out what I'm up to. And I'll um, actually, I'll put them in the show notes. But I, I would actually encourage you, Pat, to. I understand you're busy, but what you're sharing on Instagram is actually, like, I'm aware of lots of people doing things around the world, but you're, what you're doing is some of the coolest stuff out there. And visually, it's amazing. So I would encourage you to share more of that to the greatest degree you can. Definitely. And for me, it's just a long haul for my kids. I'm realizing that how, what I can leave behind for them and how I can raise them close to the land, like how I was raised close to the land. Um, that's what I want to do. And, and it doesn't matter if you're Hawaiian or white or whatever color or race you are, you can still find a connection where you live and still learn about the plants and still learn. Cause you know, it's we're really in a really trippy time and, and the more that the kids know how to grow some stuff and, and survive and um, maintain their own life and from the land, the better off they're going to be. That's the name of the game at the moment, mate. Reconnection to country. It's going to keep us sane and healthy and happy and well-fed. There's more music coming too. (laughs) Okay. All right. Thanks so much, mate. I appreciate you taking the time. All the best. Thanks so much. See you, buddy. Aloha. Aloha.
Should not go down, polish up our body. 